Okay, so so Jim, when did you see this ad that Trump posted on his Twitter last night? I saw it last night. I watched about 20 seconds of it and then got the gist and stopped watching it. Jim Newell is Slate's political correspondent, our midterm guru. He's also been following along as President Trump cranks up the political heat on immigration over the last month, sending troops to the border, talking about changing the Constitution. And then last night, this video the president tweeted out. The only thing that fucking regret is the fucking skill, too. I wish I fucking kill more of those motherfuckers. Kill more cops, too. This is mostly courtroom footage of a guy named Luis Bracamontes, a twice-deported Mexican immigrant who was sentenced to death for killing cops. On the screen, it says, Democrats let him into our country. Yeah, I mean, you can't get much more overt than Democrats uh, want to let in immigrant murderers to come and kill police officers, and that's what they will do if they take back power. I mean, that doesn't that doesn't really insinuate anything. That just sort of says things. The, the tweet that accompanied this video was, it is outrageous what the Democrats are doing to our country. Vote Republican now. It's, yeah, as sharp a wedge as you can make. It's insane. It's ludicrous. But, you know, it's going to work on some people. Yeah, it's like I think about <laughs> I, I think about the morning in America idea, and I'm like, oh, my God, it's right. midnight in America. <laughs> midnight on <laughs> Halloween, yeah. But Jim says an ad like this one, it's not like it works on everyone or in every midterm race. The president is talking to one particular group of people. What goes through my mind is that he only really has one mode of thinking, uh, which is only uh, base enthusiasm. He only is, you know, goes for the red meat at the end. He doesn't really have any efforts to, to persuade some Republicans who might be leaving the fold to come back. You know, he's not talking about uh, the good economic news. He really only knows how to go for the red meat to try to gin up the Republican base. And that is uh, a strategy that, you know, probably won't help the House much, but could help Republicans in the Senate. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? As Americans get ready to vote, I wanted to know how Donald Trump's campaign rhetoric about immigration was actually playing out on the ground around the country. So I asked Jim to come in and fill me in. And he said, with a wedge issue like this one, watch the Senate. So today, we're going to walk through a few especially close races. And we're going to ask how deep of a wedge we're really in. Then we're going to go to Mountain View, California, where hundreds of Google employees walked out on the job. BuzzFeed's Caroline O'Donovan will tell us why. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. If you want to understand what is happening in the United States right now, you really need to understand what's happening with the courts, the law, and the Supreme Court. 
The battle between democracy and whatever this cage match is that we're witnessing, it's going to be won and lost at the ballot box, but it's also going to be won and lost in the courtrooms. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I host Slate's legal podcast, Amicus, and we are doubling our output, bringing you weekly episodes from here on in, because how else can we keep an eye on the many trials of Donald Trump, the conservative legal movement's assaults on our rights, the Supreme Court's latest slate of environmental gutting, gun safety, eviscerating cases on the docket. So follow Amicus wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes dropping every Saturday morning. All right, look at the calendar. You've got five more days till the midterm election. Deep breaths. And in case you thought the president would ease up on his immigration rhetoric, he won't. He made a speech from the Roosevelt Room just this afternoon about border security and how he plans to greet the so-called caravan of migrants walking through Mexico to the United States. We have thousands of tents. We have a lot of tents. We have a lot of everything. We're going to hold them right there. We're not letting them into our country. The president's called this midterm season the election of the caravan. Slate's Jim Newell says that this kind of campaigning mostly appeals to the president's red state base, where the Senate battleground is concentrated. Okay, I want to spin through a few of these Senate races that are especially tight. Give me your, like, one-line summaries of the races I need to pay attention to and why. Sure. Well, there's actually a lot of similarities between the major ones. In Indiana, you have Joe Donnelly, the Democratic incumbent, running against Mike Braun, the Republican. It is essentially a tie. In Missouri, you have Claire McCaskill, the incumbent Democrat, running against Josh Hawley, who's the Republican state attorney general. It's essentially a tie. In Arizona, you have Democratic Congresswoman Kirsten Sinema running against Republican Congresswoman Martha McSally. It is essentially a tie. And it's worth noting also that these races since the summer have trended a little bit more in Republicans' favor. So these are really coin flips right now. You could look at a Wednesday morning next week when Republicans have uh, broken even or picked up a Senate seat. You could look at one where Republicans have netted three Senate seats. So it's really just extremely close right now. And are the candidates running in the same ways? Like in Indiana and Missouri and Arizona, are they all playing by the same playbook? Yeah, essentially. They're all sort of running to the center. You could even say that they're running to the right. I mean, are are the Republicans, is it fair to say they're all sort of running in the mold of Trump and the Democrats are sort of running in the mold of Trump light? Yeah, you see Republicans running on a base first strategy because they have more voters to work with. And you see Democrats who know that they need some of those Republican voters to vote for them. So they are moving in Republicans' direction. They are supporting pretty much anything that the president puts forward on immigration right now with this, you know, manufactured caravan crisis. They're just sort of throwing anything at the wall that they can because they know that they just need to keep scrounging for a few more Republican votes. So can you give me some examples of like what the Democratic candidates are saying on the campaign trail? Sure. And we can also look at some of their TV ads like Joe Donnelly, the Democrat in Indiana. He has this ad where he is Chopping wood, you know, a very manly pose. Ron keeps lying about my record. I split with my own party to support funding for Trump's border wall. The liberal left wants to chop defense spending. No way. I'm not into a fair fight. I'm about giving our troops the edge. 
it's sort of humiliating actually watching him chop the wood. But he's talking about how Mike Braun is li- his opponent, Mike Braun, is lying about his record, that he supports Trump's border wall, and also they supported renewing the Bush tax cuts. So he's throwing a lot of Republican policies out there. That's a lot of buzzwords for one ad. Yeah, it, it's a lot. I encourage everyone to watch the ad because it's humiliating. Uh, in Missouri, uh, Claire McCaskill, she knows that sending the military to the border, you know, in some effort to stop the caravan somehow, is, is stupid. I mean, is she just, you know, that's that's such an absurd thing that she would know that's silly. But clearly it must be having some traction because she's coming around, going on Fox News to say that she supports this. And what do you do? When they get to the border, what do you do? I think the president has to use every tool he has at his disposal, and I'm 100 percent back him up on that. Whether it is turning them back um, because we are not equipped to handle that many asylum claims. So clearly, you know, if you look at what Trump is doing, if there is any strategy behind this rather than this gut-level feeling, he's trying to uh, rile up the base to polarize the electorate. And if you polarize the electorate, that's going to work out pretty well for for Republicans in the Senate. Hmm. You know what struck me is looking at looking at the Kirsten Cinema race with Martha McSally is <laughs> it's hard to get her to say anything on these issues. She's so tight-lipped and when she speaks it's like every word is being pulled out of her. And then when it is, she's saying things that are pretty not quite Trumpian but definitely leaning right. Yeah, she's been an interesting candidate just because the, the contrast between her, her House tenure and the campaign she's running versus how she was in the 2000s when she was supporter of the Green Party, an anti-war activist, very big in the progressive activism scene. And since she came to Congress and maybe started thinking about a statewide run, she's been one of the most conservative Democrats in the House. So, you know, that obviously has left Martha McSally a lot of material to work with about whether she's being opportunistic or not. But yeah, Kirsten Cinema is, you know, running a conservative Democrats campaign. And it is very difficult to get her to say that much. It's very, uh, very tightly protected. You know, it strikes me listening to you tick off these races, these states are pretty red. In some ways, it seems optimistic for Democrats to think they have a chance. It has. And I, I think part of this is that Democrats really sort of got their expectations up over the summer, this has always been a really difficult map. And you can, if you judge it by the number of challenges Democrats are facing, where they have 25 or 26 seats up for re-election, 10 in states that Trump won, if they only have two or three endangered incumbents out of that entire map, that's not a bad election cycle. It's just hopes got up that Democrats could run the entire table and win all these races. But now reality is settling in a little bit. It looks like North Dakota, where Democrat Heidi Heitkamp is running for re-election, that looks pretty much gone now. And, you know, if she goes down and maybe McCaskill and Donnelly, which, you know, I'm not saying that they will go down, but it's pretty decent chance of it, you know, then they would lose three seats. They might pick up one, one or two in Arizona and Nevada. And, you know, they would net out to losing maybe one seat. And that's not bad in the scheme of things when you look at what they're up against going into this election. But I guess until I sort of dug into this immigration issue, I felt like I had one kind of understanding of the midterms, which was like looking at races like Stacey Abrams, who's running for governor in Georgia, or Beto O'Rourke in Texas, or Andrew Gillum in Florida. They're just all about these very progressive ideas about being a Democrat. 
these other races, I don't feel like are getting the same attention with these folks running towards the center. Right. I mean, they may not be just because they're not very um, <laughs> they're not very inspirational campaigns. You know, watching Josh Hawley and Claire McCaskill grind it out pretty much is not, you know, as exciting as an Andrew Gillum or a Stacey Abrams or a Beto O'Rourke where you really have progressive Democrats trying to do something in these more purple states. I guess I wonder if that's part of the problem, though, that it's like when we're communicating these campaign messages, it's harder for us to communicate these ideas of compromise or centrism, and we're less excited by them. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's part of the problem. And, I, you know, it's, it's a, it can be a trap when you're running a campaign and you want to promise as much as possible, and then you govern and, you know, you go to Congress, which is a, a fundamentally broken institution where it's very difficult to govern uh, on clean promises that you make to voters in your bases. Um, you cover Congress. You just said it was a fundamentally broken institution. <laughs> that was being generous, too. <laughs> I mean, that gives me, like, no hope. Well, I'm not here to provide hope. I mean, it's, it's you know, Congress is, a, is an institution that is designed to work on consensus because everything has to come through the Senate, which is forged on taking whatever the House sends your way, forging a consensus on that issue and getting a, a supermajority pass it out. And that just doesn't work in a, in a polarized political system like we sort of have now. You mentioned that this kind of campaigning can make it harder to actually do business once you get back to Washington when the campaign is over. I wonder, looking at how the immigration rhetoric has shifted, do you think after midterms, things in Congress are going to get worse or better? I just don't know where a lot's going to get done. I think you're going to have, if there is a Democratic House, which is what the projections say, you know, we can't say that for sure right now, but it, it looks like they're in good shape to take back the House and a GOP Senate. It's just, it's difficult to see what really they would achieve that Trump is willing to sign. You might think that there's a, actually somehow a better chance for an immigration bill because if Democrats could get, say, uh, a DREAM Act out of the House, then there are some Republicans in the Senate who support that, but Trump won't go along with that still. So the, the, the path for gridlock is still sort of there, and it's going to be interesting also to see uh, if there's a Democratic majority the internal dynamics within that conference because there'll be some very conservative new Democrats there and then there'll be some socialist Democrats there. So it'll be also interesting to see if they're able to get all of themselves together to produce legislation that they can send to the Senate. Jim Newell, thank you so much. Thank you. One more thing before we go. All over the world today, employees at Google walked off the job. These protests were sparked by a report last week about sexual misconduct at the company's highest levels. In one case, an executive was reportedly paid millions of dollars when he left Google, even though an investigation found he was credibly accused of coercing another employee into sex. BuzzFeed's Caroline O'Donovan is in Mountain View today to cover the story from Google headquarters. Hey, Caroline. Hey, how's it going? Good. So I'm kind of curious, what did this protest look like today? There were definitely hundreds of Google employees standing outside in the sunshine. Uh, Google lent the organizers some microphones. Organizers had, you know, coloring books and activities for people to do who felt, you know, stressed out mentally by 
the events and it was basically, you know, hundreds of employees packed into a central courtyard here on Google's campus in Mountain View, California, listening to speakers talk and, and chanting, you know, various chants and uh, listening to their fellow coworkers talk about their experiences with sexual harassment here at Google and listing their demands to management for what they want to see change. Yeah. What are they asking for? Um, they have a list of, of about five main demands. Uh, one of them is they want to end the practice of mandatory arbitration so that employees have a right to sue Google in open court. They want a new process for reporting sexual harassment to sort of change the current system to something that would also include temps, vendors, uh, contractors, interns, you know, non-full-time employees. They want a system whereby employees who are reporting sexual harassment to HR can have an employee representative go with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it doesn't feel like, you know, they're just alone facing off to Google. You know, the CEO of Google, Sundar Pichai, expressed his support for the protest. Did he make an appearance? I did not see him. I talked to the organizers afterward, and they said they did not see him. You know, it's an interesting situation. Like I said, they they lent the protesters some microphones and some signs to draw on. They obviously, you know, uh, cleared the courtyard and said that there wouldn't be retaliation for people who walked away from their desks during this period of time today. But at the same time, it's not, you know, it's not a Google-sponsored event, and they are making demands, um, and, you know, there could potentially be further actions if management doesn't meet those demands. So the dynamic, I think, is an interesting one. But no, I I didn't personally see any executives out there today. You know, I noticed you saying on Twitter that sexual harassment allegations like this have been around for a while. Why did this protest happen now? Uh, Yeah, there have been Google employees in the past who have made allegations of sexual harassment against various uh, other employees at Google. And some of the things in the New York Times story, as the New York Times, you know, reported, actually had been known before. But I think two main things have really changed in the last year or two. One, of course, is the national Me Too movement, really international Me Too movement. And then at the same time, inside of Google, there's been a growing employee activism here. Google had a contract with the Pentagon for Project Maven. It was a drone warfare technology contract, uh, which some employees are very uncomfortable with. After 12 of them quit, Google actually agreed not to renew that contract. Uh, After that, it was revealed by The Intercept that Google was working or is working on a search product for China that would potentially comply with China's censorship laws. Uh, So there's also been employee activism over that. Things like presenting management with petitions or, like I said, people quitting their jobs. There's been a growing trend inside the company of employees learning how to ask for what they want, coming together, sort of experimenting with the power of their collective voice and trying to figure out if and how they can sort of shape the decisions the company makes as a group. It sounds like as the company gets bigger, the definition of don't be evil and who's in charge of it is changing. You might want to fact check me on this one, but I actually think there were some reports that Google had sort of quietly phased that part of its slogan out a little while ago, which of course is not because they want to embrace being evil, but I think there are some things about Google's brand and culture that have changed over time. A lot of the company, the employees, um, you know, some of the people who have been here for a long time haven't necessarily caught up. And there's a little bit of a culture war, I think, going on inside the company between people who have been here a very long time and uh, have certain expectations around transparency from leadership and other things. And at the same time, you know, like you said, it's a growing company. It's over 80,000 people. It's a global force at this point. Um, And I think that it's what we're seeing is a little bit of uh, folks hashing that out. As you're watching this protest, I wonder if you think that this kind of activism is going to spread to other companies in Silicon Valley. 
I think that we've already seen activism like this at other companies in Silicon Valley. Um, part of this is a national political story, right? And we've seen employees at Amazon and employees at Microsoft speak out against those companies working with ICE on immigration software, right? We've seen them sign petitions. We've seen individual employees speak out about their discomfort with that kind of thing. So I, I think that we have seen it and we will continue to see it. There are organizations in the tech industry, you know, Tech Workers Coalition is one of them, where workers have been gathering and growing numbers to talk about this kind of thing. If not necessarily unionizing the tech industry, well, how can, how can they leverage their collective voice and have a little bit more of a say what kind of products are built and what decisions are being made? So I've certainly... Uh, seen this trend grow over the last year, and, and I do tend to think that we'll continue to see it grow. Carolina Donovan, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Just a note here, we did fact-check Caroline. According to the Internet Archive, Google's Code of Conduct was updated this spring. It used to begin with the words, don't be evil. Now, it doesn't. Before we wrap up the show today, one more thing. Slate's hiring a production assistant to help us make this very show. So if you know someone who wants to come work with us in our Brooklyn office, or if you are that special someone, we want you to apply. The job is listed on Slate.com right now. Okay, that's our show. What Next is a daily news show from Slate, hosted by me, Mary Harris, and produced by Mary Wilson and Jason DeLeon. Our engineer is Terrence Bernardo. If you like what you're hearing, let us know with a review on Apple Podcasts. If you don't like what you're hearing, you should let us know that too. But maybe email us at whatnext at slate.com. Talk to you tomorrow.